0: The story.
1: I kept quiet, played dead, and they buried and left. So after they left, I decided to pray. Praying the best prayer I've ever known, but crying at the same time and wondering even if somebody will ever even hear me. But God made it possible.
0: Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have part two of Frida Umahosa sharing how she miraculously escaped from the 1994 genocide against her Tutsi people in Rwanda. Frida is the author of the book Chosen to Die, Destined to Live. When we ended last time, sadly, all of Frida's family had been killed and Frida was left to die in a ditch. Then she called out for help. Now, here's more of Frida sharing her story with Eric Scatterbo in our Melbourne studios.
1: God made it possible and brought a lady, that lady that was picking bananas in that area, who was a neighbour to my grandpa, and heard me scream and praying. But she ran thinking, you know, it's a ghost. So Mm. she ran of fear, and she went Mm. and told someone. And the person she was talking to is a guy who actually worked for my grandfather. And Mm -hmm. he said, sometimes they bury people alive. It must be someone who's still alive. But she says, but it's somebody, that voice has been screaming since morning at three. It can't possibly be someone who's still alive until then, because now it's in the afternoon. Oh, wow. And so he says, I'll still go check. Mm -hmm. So he comes and finds me alive and takes me out of the ditch. Very long story short. Then this lady ends up taking me for a few hours, and then the following day I was then hidden by another neighbor who was a Hutu, and I was at his place probably three or four weeks until the RPF, um, you know, took over my village. hmm during all those times that I was at his house, so during the night, because during the night they would search into people's in the Hutu's, other Hutu's homes to see if there are no hiding people. Mm. So he made a deal with me during the night I would sleep outside. He dug um, a small ditch in his banana plantation. He says, you can't stay the night in the house because they come and search in the homes. So I'll be putting you outside during the night and then during the day you can come in the house. So all those four weeks, three, four weeks, mm-hmm. I was sleeping outside during the night in the mm-hmm. ditch. And he'll put, uh, you know, banana leaves and grass on, on top of me. And then in the morning, he'll bring me into the house. But during that time, I think I'd, I was just surviving. I didn't mm-hmm. allow myself to feel. I didn't allow myself to, um, to even feel the pain of losing my family. It was just like I was numb and Yeah, you must
2: have been in shock.
1: Yeah, sometimes I'll tell myself this has not happened. Mm. What I've seen has maybe I'm going crazy, maybe mm. it's a nightmare and I will wake up. This is not happening. And another time I would just try to kind of like you know. Anyways, at the end of that Time when the uh, village is been reverted and taken over, then I, I was taken to the um, refugee, so to speak, like a refugee, a place where they'll put survivors. Mm-hmm. And that was the time that I cried. When I looked around, I knew nobody. And I knew I'm not going to have a family. I knew it wasn't a nightmare. Mm. I knew that I had to accept that what I had seen was real. It wasn't. So you-
2: you were the only survivor I in your family. I was the only
1: survivor of my family. And that's the day that I, I allowed myself to cry, mm-hmm. literally like breaking down. And um, I was then taken in by um, a lady who was taking in a few orphans. And then my mom's brother, who was in the, in Burundi, Came searching in different places, mm. looking for a survivor. So during that time, you would, you know, you would hear oh, so and so has survived, your cousin has survived, mm. or your auntie has survived. So I was then um, told that my my dad's cousin also survived, who who had um, four children, and she took me in. Mm.
2: So now, at this point, the killing is over. The killing is the over. The Tutsi army has liberated yes. your area. Yes. So there is some peace in the area.
1: Yep peace and fear and trauma hmm. and bombs going off from place to place because, oh, because remember that it's
2: still going on yeah
1: when the hutu soldiers left they left bombs in different places oh, mines. So, yeah yeah mines hmm. and so yeah there is peace there is hope that is starting to come in but there's also so much fear and hmm. there's so much desperation of what am I gonna do with my life? Mm. There's life has no sense whatsoever, and there's so much loss. Um, it, it, you can't think of the future at that moment. I wasn't thinking of the future. Mm. I was. You just think of the hour that you're living. You're just in a yeah, just trying to get mode, by day mode. to day,
2: yeah, hour by hour,
1: yeah. And and um, then was uh, adopted. You know, a few months later, um, I was adopted by a family that lived outside the country because my uncle who had me um, decided, you know, maybe the best thing to help this kid is to get her out of this country. So, he sent me to his cousin who lived in Gabon to be adopted. But the trauma was very, very um, heavy Mm -hmm. on me. So, even when I lived in Gabon with the family, I remember screaming in the night because of the nightmares mm-hmm. and flashbacks yeah. and just crying every day uh, in the school where I was, nobody understood me nobody understood what I was going through and so up until when I was 18, it was pretty dark time for me mm-hmm. I didn't make enough friends in school, I was pretty you know, angry all the time and mm-hmm. really in a bad mood all the time uh, because not only did did I go back um, with the family that adopted me decided to go back to Rwanda. So I had to go back to the same school that I was at before the genocide, Mm. which meant then you're sitting with the Hutu children. So I had a lot of um, bitterness and a lot of uh, trauma. uh, Mm. And during the night, I remember during the night, everybody would go to sleep in that boarding school and I would just be crying with Mm. so much pain of like... You know, how mm. do I, you know, why am I even in school? You know, like there's that much depression f- as, as a teenager mm-hmm. and not able to even speak. You know, right now I'm telling my story and I've told my story several times, but during that time I couldn't. I mm. couldn't put it in words. I couldn't even tell uh, my own family how, you know, how they killed mm-hmm. my mom and my brothers. I couldn't say it. I was just internalizing mm-hmm. everything. But um, when I turned 18, um, like I said, my, my grandpa was the wonderful Christian I've ever known in my entire mm. life. And so I kept going to church, even with that much hatred and with that much depression and that trauma, but I didn't believe in God. I just went because of my grandpa, mm. but I didn't really Just have, out of respect for him. Yeah, but I had no faith. Mm. Uh, but at 18, through a friend, I came to know Christ personally and during the time that I was searching to why am I alive and to uh, there was something missing mm. there was that you know mm. what is it and so I saw her she came into my school she was new in my school and I saw her with a bible and singing all the time and just by the look just by looking at her I knew she had something that I wanted but mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was mm-hmm. so I went to her I said "What is it that you have because I want it and so she told me she didn't say much she said, "Will you come with me to the lunch hour fellowship where I go during the lunch time mm-hmm. and I went with her the following day and Right there, the preacher that was preaching on that day, it was like he knew my whole entire story and talked about like it was um, I was the only person in that room. Mm. And I knew God was speaking to me. I knew God was calling me out. And that was the day that I gave my life to Jesus. And mm-hmm. from that day. That night, I remember going back home smiling, like really completely changed. And even my mother, and my adopted mother, she saw me. She said, what's, what's going on? What has happened? Hmm. And I said to her, I received the thing. She goes, what thing? <laughs> I said, Christ. And I, I started telling her, I now understand why God saved me. I understand why he picked me out of that ditch. Hmm. He saved my life for a purpose, and I'm going to serve him. Because in my prayer during the time that I was praying in the ditch, I said, Lord, if you ever save me, I'll serve you all the days of my life. Hmm. But instead of fulfilling my promise, or it's not really a promise, but instead of um, doing what I prayed for after that, I was very angry. Hmm. And I felt like my anger was justified. But that day, that's when I remembered my prayer, that I prayed in the Mm -hmm, ditch. mm -hmm. And so I said to her, I now know that God saved my life for a purpose, for a reason. And I have to speak His miracles. He brought me back to speak His miracles. And it was from that time my life was changed. But not to say that everything was fixed. Mm -hmm. I had to deal with a lot of hatred that I had been carrying for all, all, all those years. And I felt like I had... I had pretty good reasons to hate the Hutus. Mm-hmm. I had pretty good reasons to hate the people who killed my family. And so.
2: And you're living with them now.
1: And I'm living with them now. I'm going to school with them. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt like my relationship with God is not going to go anywhere until I let God take this hatred out of mm-hmm. my heart. And even then, to even accept that I do have that hatred in my heart and mm-hmm. it, that it's it's wrong to have that head instead of justifying it. And um, it was a, a pretty hard and tough journey. Mm-hmm. And I asked people to pray for me and um, ask a few friends. But I told them, but I have pretty good reasons because some of them knew what I had gone through. And I wouldn't stand a preacher who came to that lunch hour Fellowship talking about forgiveness because the examples that we're giving has nothing close to losing mm. the whole family oh, in yeah. one day. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, I understand, but there's no way that I can forgive people who haven't even asked for forgiveness. But I knew I was doing it for me. You know, somebody said forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. Mm-hmm. And hatred is like drinking poison and expect your enemy to die. And so, I knew that I had come to a point where my relationship with God, for it to grow and to mm-hmm. get moving and to go to that place where I'm talking about I have to proclaim the victory and the miracles of God in my life. I knew I wouldn't go with the baggage of hating the Hutus and, and not allowing myself to, uh, to be used of God. Mm-hmm. And so, it was a, a hardest journey. Mm-hmm. And… Um, I remember praying and saying, Lord, I really, really want to do this, but I don't even know where I can start because they haven't asked me for forgiveness. And even if, if I forgive them, it's not going to bring my family back. There's no way. Mm-hmm. But I remember hearing the Lord talking to me and saying, just let me do it in your heart. And I knew from that time, my responsibility was to just allow God to work through my heart and to surrender.
0: You're listening to The Story. Today, our guest once again is Frida Umahosa, who's sharing what happened in her life after she survived the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. We'll hear more of her story and how she was finally able to forgive the perpetrators when we return. Our guest once again is Frida Umahosa, who's the author of the book Chosen to Die, Destined to Live, about her miraculous escape from the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. Frida's been sharing about what happened in her life after she was the only survivor in her family. Now, she tells about her difficult journey to forgiving the perpetrators.
1: I'm I'm a confrontational person, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a very bad thing. (laughs) But then you go to a point where I'm like, I have to face these people because they are still monsters in my head. But to resolve this, I have to see their faces. I have to come face to face with them and declare forgiveness and declare that I've forgiven them, but also to... um, Take all that power that they had mm. over my life to take it back for myself.
2: So they were living in your neighborhood.
1: Some of them were in jail, mm. but their families were still in the neighborhood.
2: Okay, so not the actual perpetrators, the murderers.
1: Yes, but their, in jail.
2: But their family were in your neighborhood.
1: Yes. So I took a bus and I went to the to jail, mm-hmm. and it was I was living in Kigali by then. And I went back into my village, and I went to jail with my, I went with my cousin, because I didn't want to go by myself. But I So rem- you're
2: going to see a killer, people-
1: the person who killed my father, hmm. and that I was told that he had been captured and he's in that jail, and I'm putting a face on to say, I'm going to see him, and, and. and This is not something that I will, you know, um, advise everybody to do Mm. if really um, you are not up to it because it it can be re-traumatizing. It can be really confronting. Mm -hmm. It can be um, triggering and really bad if you're not ready. And that's what happened on that first visit for me. I saw this man and the moment they brought him out, I just felt so much anger, so much fear and so much terror because… The image that I had of him is him coming to my house with a machete. Mm. So even though he had his hands folded this time and he's in jail, in my head he still had that same power of a killer over me. And I I just couldn't even shake hands with him. So Mm. I remember going back home, crying on the bus and saying, Mm. Lord, you're asking something impossible of me.
2: Was he repentant?
1: He didn't look repentant at all. He actually looked like he despised me. And uh, I went back home and again, I took a few months in between and praying and fasting and asking the Lord, I really want to do this and I want to be able to go to bed not fearing that I I will be killed or anything. And um, the more I prayed, the more I asked for God's grace, the more peace that came in my heart. And then a few months later, I again asked my cousin to go back with me. And he was like, well, the last time we went, it didn't go well. I'm like, this time I'm ready. I want to go see him. Mm. So I went and I told him, I said, I'm sure you don't even remember me, but I told him who I was. And I said, I I know that you killed my dad. Because my dad wasn't with us. You know, he was on the roof and Mm, he offered himself to be killed later on. And uh, I said to him, I'm here because... Jesus has changed my heart, and I'm here to declare that I have forgiven you. And that I'm here to tell you that the same grace that I've received from God is the same grace that God can extend to you no matter what. Now, um, when you talk about forgiveness and confronting the killers, um, sometimes it it brings a lot of... um, a lot of discussion uh, even among ourselves as as survivors mm-hmm. and i and i can understand that and that's not to despise what we've been through and that's not to tell that every survivor has to do that but i did it for me mm-hmm. and just the moment that i did that and that i was able to shake hands with him and that i was able to look at him in the eyes it was more like taking the keys of him of him controlling my emotions and mm-hmm. controlling the person that I am. And I, what, I didn't feel like that little kid that he had the power over. Mm-hmm. I felt like not this time I'm a woman in control. Hmm. And um,
2: Interesting. So forgiving kind of helps you feel more in control. Yes. You're not a victim anymore.
1: Yes. And um, and I remember leaving that jail. I just felt so much peace and so much, um, so much freedom. In my heart, because I didn't look at him in the eyes of hatred. And something else is that the hatred, what it does to you is that it also puts you in a position of where you feel like you have the power over that person as well. And you're not. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, um, the forgiveness, once you forgive that person, is giving you um, more. It's like an opening a door your mm-hmm. own healing mm-hmm. to start a journey of healing versus when I was close behind those prison of hatred it mm-hmm. was more like uh, I wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. um, and so I left him in jail mm-hmm. and went now to the village to my home for the first time I was able to go to my village and go to my broken my demolished home mm-hmm. and went the next door to the neighbors and one by one and I can say that that trip For me, as a survivor, that trip, I wasn't a victim anymore. I was a survivor Mm -hmm. and a survivor with a purpose. Mm -hmm. And from that day on, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect with me. I don't Mm -hmm. have bad days. I don't have um, days when I feel, you know,
2: down or the troubles or,
1: you know, the pain of losing my family. Mm -hmm. But I've chosen to remember my family without hatred. Yes, with the sense of loss, but without hatred, Mm -hmm. and that's what I knew that that that's what I want to pass on to the next generation, Mm -hmm. to my children, and to anybody else that I would be able to to speak Mm -hmm. to, Um, and so and then from then I was able to actually for the first time I was able to tell my story. I was able to now speak up about what had happened to to me Mm -hmm. and. From that time to this day, I still share my story.
2: Yeah, speaking of that, now you've shared your story to the UN. Yes. And in other conferences.
1: Yes. And um, that's mostly um, during those times that I've shared my stories. It's during our Quiboka. Quiboka is remember. We mm-hmm. have commemoration mm-hmm. of our loved ones every year. And I also have chosen, not only do I choose to speak to bring hope to the world, but I also have chosen to speak because um, the genocide deniers, people who deny that what happened to my family, what mm. happened to my people, uh, who tried to deny uh, what has happened during those 100 days, a million Tutsis were killed. Mm. And during that time, um, those three months, it's a very short time, but a big amount of people. And so survivors like me who have no families left or even survivors who still suffer psychologically and emotionally mm-hmm. and still live with the trauma 25 years old. You speak to a lot of survivors. It, there's still a lot to be done. And there's still a lot to be done in, in that community of survivors. And mm-hmm. people still suffer. And the more time goes on, the more actually, the more you understand mm-hmm. the gravity of it. Mm-hmm. I can speak for myself
2: Well unfortunately We're running out of time But what would you say Is the main thing That you want our listeners To know about your experiences uh,
1: The story of hope mm-hmm. If I could do it I don't know what you're going through It might be a divorce It might be a broken marriage Broken home And anything That brings despair mm-hmm. um, But if 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 God picked me up it's because I allowed and surrendered. So, if a situation like mine that was so hopeless, if God can work in that situation, He can work in any situation. So, it's bringing hope. It's I'm mm-hmm. trying to be an ambassador of hope and forgiveness in to yourself, to the family member that you haven't been speaking to. For, for years and years, and that will give you freedom and a start of a healing journey, and forgiveness is a a journey.
2: Frida, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank
1: you.
0: That was Eric Scatterbo chatting with Frida Umahosa, who's the author of the book Chosen to Die, Destined to Live about her miraculous escape from the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. To find out more about Frida and her book, her website is Frida.net.au. That's Frida, F-R-I-D-A, A.net.au. Well, what an amazing story she has to share, one that is almost unimaginable to have gone through. Frida is just one of many survivors of the 1994 genocide, And many, like Frida, have turned to God to give them a hope and a future after going through so much darkness. We pray that God will continue to minister to them and to heal their emotional scars. And as we heard Frida say, a big part of her healing was finally being able to forgive her perpetrators. As it says in the Bible, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This, of course, is not always easy, especially after going through something as horrific as what Frida has gone through. But with the Lord's help, it can be done. And Frida will be the first one to tell you that forgiveness is essential for moving on and healing from past traumatic experiences. Well, how about you? Is there somebody you're struggling to forgive, and you'd like to pray with someone, perhaps, about this? Our prayer line is one eight hundred. Pray for me. That's one eight hundred. 772 936. And we'd love to pray for you on that line, 1 800 772 936. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Frida's powerful story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. We took the door off the side so I could hang out of the side of the helicopter. They tied me in with a rope. It wasn't equipped with a real professional rig. I didn't realize, though, there was a loop in the rope we had forgotten about. And so when we took off, we headed out over Kingston Bay, and he turned really sharp to turn toward the stadium, and I literally went out of the helicopter and uh, had my feet on the little runners down there, but I was dangling by this rope, and all I could think of at the time was, keep the shot in focus. Phil Cook is an American Christian media consultant and founder of his own production company called Cook Pictures. He'll share his story and what it's like to be a Christian in Hollywood next time. The Story, story. just another way vision is connecting faith to life.